This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Sometimes it's the normal, sometimes it's the abnormal, and sometimes it's the paranormal. Regardless, we'll be talking about it here on Beyond Reality Radio. Welcome to the program, everyone. Um, I've got a bit of a, a, a bone to pick here because um, my son is visiting from Holland. He has been going to grad school in Holland. Came back uh, for a couple weeks to the States. He's been there since January, so we're looking at seven months or so. And uh, decided while he was here, he needed to stock the refrigerator with uh, Eggo waffles. And I haven't had an Eggo waffle in a really, really long time. But um, I was hunting around before the show uh, uh, for something to eat and uh, looked in the freezer. And sure enough, there was two Eggo waffles sitting there. So... uh, I, I decided, what the heck, they're easy. I threw them in the toaster. They popped out. I buttered them up, threw some syrup on them, and uh, ate them and became immediately hooked. And had because it was the last two, I had to walk over to the grocery store and buy another box of Eggo waffles, which I proceeded to eat about, I'm not going to exaggerate, eight more Eggo waffles. So then, then it gets time to get ready for the show. And here I am, stuffed with Eggo waffles. And uh, probably smelling a lot like uh, maple syrup. Um, I'll have to ask uh, Orion what he thinks if, if when he walked into the studio. But anyway, so I'm, if I'm a little sluggish tonight, it's because I'm working through these Eggo waffles. I appreciate you listening to that story. Uh, thank goodness we've got a fantastic guest on tonight. He's, he's not going to need a lot of help from me. He's been on the program before. Dr. Eric Hasseltine will be with us. He's a former intelligence officer and a uh, author of a book called a spy in Moscow station. We'll be do- we're going to be talking about something that's been in the news a lot, specifically the last couple of days, and that's Russian spying, the art of spycraft as presented by the Russians. What are they doing? What have they been doing from the 1970s right up to the election of 2016 and beyond? Where have their fingers been meddling? And our expert guest tonight, Dr. Eric Hasseltine, will talk to us about that. We'll get some perspective, and it should be a very, very fascinating discussion. Don't forget that Friday night will be a best-of program here on Beyond Reality Radio. As we look to next week, we've got some really interesting guests coming up, a couple of repeat guests, too. John Zeta will be with us next week. He's a journalist, and he'll be talking about his new book called In the, In the Valleys of the Noble Beyond, In Search of the Sasquatch. He'll be talking about his time researching in the Great Bear Rainforest. Also next week, Rick Shapiro. He's a cancer consultant, a researcher, and an educator. And he's the author of a book called Hope Never Dies. It relates stories of people who have beaten the odds and survived cancer. Those are stories of hope for a lot of people. And then also uh, a returning guest next week, Bernie Taylor. He's a naturalist, and he's author and an author. And he's going to answer the question, Are We Alone in the Cosmos? by examining nature's timekeeping system. So a lot of great guests coming up next week here on the program. Make sure you set your alarm clock so you are awake for it. Or if you have to download the program after the fact, that's okay too. That's all right. 
As long as you're listening in one form or another, we have a lot of people that listen to the podcast version of Beyond Reality Radio. We welcome you just as much as we welcome anyone else. Um, Just do me a favor. If you are listening that way, on whatever platform you're listening, give us a rating. Go to the rating uh, mechanism on on whatever it is and and rate us. Hopefully, well. (laughs) That would be appreciated because that helps other people find the program. Also, go to our uh, social media pages, Beyond Reality Radio on Facebook. And my page is uh, just JV Johnson, or you can find it by looking for JVJ Paranormal. And give both of those a like. And finally, I'll remind you of the YouTube channel, which is a great place to view a live stream of the show if you can't get the show on a local radio station. Plus, there's about 300 archived back episodes on the YouTube channel. Go to YouTube, search for JV Johnson. It's very easy to find. You'll find it. Subscribe to it. Click the little bell icon notification icon so that you get a notification when the show goes live or we upload new content. Because in addition to the live stream and the past episode archive, we also do some special content on the uh, the YouTube page as well. All right, that's going to do it for now. Let's um, let's take a break and get our guest on the phone again. Tonight we'll be talking to Dr. Eric Hasseltine, and we're going to be talking about Russians and spying. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Did you know that online retailers like Amazon have constant deals that can save you money on the things you buy every day? It's no joke. Save 40%, 50%, even 80% on great products, and all you have to do is know about them. Noodle Shark is the way to be alerted when something good is coming your way. Noodle Shark is the social media page lists great deals that not only save you money, but give you the deals before anyone else has them. All you have to do is find Noodle Shark on Facebook. Search it as The Noodle Shark. That's The Noodle Shark, because you deserve to save too. Become a shark and save. I'll tell you this. This is uh, the Thursday night program, which is our last live program of the week, and there's no better way to end the week than our guest tonight, a returning guest, Dr. Eric Hasseltine. He is a Ph.D., widely acclaimed popular science writer for Discover Magazine and PsychologyToday.com. He's an innovative neuroscientist and a futurist, also worked at Walt Disney Imagineering as the executive vice president and head of research and development. He's also served the U.S. government as an associate director of national intelligence, author of many, many books, including the one we're going to be talking about tonight, A Spy in Moscow Station. Eric, welcome back to Beyond Reality Radio. It's a pleasure to have you here. Great to be back. I think the last time you were here, we were talking about the things the brain can do that you don't realize it can do. Mm-hmm. Well, most of what goes on in our bodies and in our brain is below the surface. Probably you're only aware of 1% of everything that's happening. And uh, I wrote a book about that called Brain Safari, which right. uh, takes you on a inner journey to discover all of these things your brain is doing without your permission. I think mine is doing plenty without my permission, and in many yeah. cases, it's not it's not even communicating with me at all, which can be a bit of a problem. Um, let's talk let's talk about this book, uh, "A Spy in Moscow Station." This is a complete change of topics from what we were talking about when you were with us last. What is this book about? The book is a mystery that is about an NSA officer, kind of a technology version of George Smiley from Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Mm-hmm. And he's called to Moscow to find out what the leak is that's leading to the arrest, torture, and execution of a number of CIA spies in Russia. This is in 1978. It's a true story. And when he gets to Moscow to solve the mystery, immediately another mystery presents itself because they find a mysterious device in a fake chimney while he's there. 
and they ask him to try to figure out what it is. And uh, so the book is about, that's how the book starts, and it's about his long journey to get to the truth. Is the book a novel about the true story, or is it uh, an account of the true story? It's an account. It's all true. Um, I knew Charles Candy, who is the protagonist, if you will, and uh, he was on an advisory board that oversaw my activities while I was at NSA. I was the associate director at NSA in charge of uh, research and development, and I had an outside board that advised me and the director, my boss, on my performance. And he told me this story very early on in my tenure at NSA. And uh, just now, it's been declassified a few years ago, so I was able to share the story. 1978 is when this occurred. Uh, Paint the picture for us, because I think there are many that are listening that certainly weren't alive at the time and probably don't remember what was going on between the United States and its foes, particularly the Soviet Union, in 1978. Well, it was the height of the Cold War. It was right before the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, and our relations with the Russians hit an all-time low around this time, where we refused to go to the 1980 Olympics in Russia. Right. And uh, things were really bad. And uh, what was happening in that time is that we had a number of what we call assets, human assets. You might think of them as spies. Uh, we intelligence officers never call ourselves spies. We're intelligence officers. Spies are the people that we hired to steal secrets for us who are usually nationals of the country that we're spying on. And in this case, uh, we had a number of arrests and death sentences and executions. Uh, one suicide, one of our agents committed suicide. Uh, and the chief of station of CIA at the time, a guy named Gus Hathaway, who was running the Moscow operation, was at wit's end because he wasn't able to figure out what was happening, why the Russians were breaking all of our networks. And so, in desperation, he reached across organizational lines and called a guy he knew at uh, Charles Gandhi to come to Moscow and see if he could figure out what was going on. In 19... I'm trying to remember the dates now. In 19... uh, Was it 91 that the Berlin Wall came down? Yeah. Yeah. In 1991, the Berlin Wall came down. Um, there are a lot of uh, debates and discussions as to who is responsible for winning the Cold War, but how much of a part of the Cold War and winning it, if there truly was a victor here, uh, is related to espionage and spying? Well, it's hard to say. Um, I think it did have a role, but in ways a lot of people would think are not intuitive. The Russians are the best in the world, in my opinion, at spying. And because they have so little money, they stole a lot of our technology and turned it into their weapon systems. The problem was, in a way, it took away their initiative. Uh, Because they were so good at spying, they didn't invent a lot of their own stuff. And the lead that we had with them in technology kept growing. We always had about a five- to ten-year lead. And as the years went by, in absolute terms, that lead got bigger. So when Star Wars came along and threatened to nullify their nuclear deterrent, that was a huge stressor to them, and they couldn't match us, and I think that was a factor. But um, did espionage lead to it? I think the Soviet system being inefficient and 
ultimately doomed uh, was really what had to do with it. I, I don't know that espionage really played a key role. So it was it was a system that was doomed to failure, is what you're saying? That's my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we talk about Star Wars, and we talk about the fact that it was that was a bit of a turning point for the Soviet Union because they could not keep up. Today, mm-hmm. today we hear frequently in the news. And we've just got a few more minutes here in this segment. We hear uh, the the Russians and, and Vladimir Putin is out uh, beating his chest about new weapons systems and uh, innovative technology and cutting edge uh, weapons that they're debuting and, and put employing. Uh, is that real? Is that really happening? Are the Russians getting an edge somewhere? Yes. I think in certain areas that they choose to excel, they are better than us. Whether or not it's as broad as what uh, Vladimir Putin says is, uh, I think, a little questionable. Uh, but um, th- there are areas, electronic warfare, espionage uh, technology, uh, high-energy particle beams, things like that, where I would say they're ahead of us. How long have you been keeping an eye on this you, you work with the uh, the nsa obviously you know you've known this story for for some time you wrote about it you had to research it how long has this been in your crosshairs this the book um about uh, probably 15 years because i first heard about the story in 2003 when uh and that's the start of the book um where gandhi takes me aside and says look uh you've got to focus on this certain, what we call tradecraft, this kind of technical techno, uh, espionage technology. And because uh, it's kind of going by the boards, and the Russians are way ahead of us. And I said, well, I'm not too worried about the Russians. I'm worried about al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein. And he said, boy, you better worry about the Russians. Let me tell you a story. And this is the story that he told me. And what year was that? That was uh, 2003. Wow. And we definitely had our national attention elsewhere at that point, didn't we? We did, and we suffered for it. While our eye was off the Russians, they were making a lot of progress. What happened at the fall of the... The fall of the Soviet Union at the end of the Cold War, there was a period there where it really looked like we were going to be friends with the Russians. That didn't seem to last too long. I remember we, we gave them aid. We worked with other countries to provide aid and guidance, and, uh, and all of a sudden that just changed. Well, you know, it did. And believe it or not, Putin was actually pretty pro-West and pro-American during those times. But the Russians feel that we took advantage of them, that they were down and we tried to get control of their economy and their political system as opposed to help them find their own way. And they're very bitter about that. And I think uh, there's some validity to it. Um, there's a great book coming out uh, next month called The Russia Trap by George Beebe, who used to be head of the Russia desk at CIA. And he talks about how the Russians turned from being semi-friends to back to almost Cold War adversary status. And it started with their perception that we betrayed them and exploited them during that period. And in what way? Because we sent our companies in to, and from their estimation, steal their resources or... What kind of I think betrayal? it was mo- mostly that we tried to influence their political system. I see. Um, is this sounding familiar? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you could look at what's happened since 2016 and before with them influencing our election from their point of view as payback. And, uh, Eric, if folks go to the website, what are they going to find there? Well, they're going to find the different things that I'm into. Uh, I spent a lot of my time 
exploring the brain's mysteries and writing about them and talking about them. Uh, I'm a futurist, so you'll see some stuff on there about ideas about what's in store for us in the future. And there will be some discussion of my latest book, of course. Let's talk about Russia specifically for a couple minutes here. Let's put it in perspective. Uh, Obviously, Russia is not the Soviet Union. And uh, the Soviet Union was um, far more expansive geographically and uh, had a greater population and uh, had more economic activity, from what I understand. Russia is not the Soviet Union. Put Russia in perspective for us. Well, the most important thing is look at their economy. It's about the size of that of Texas. And uh, they kind of punch above their weight class, don't they? Yeah, I'd say. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, their economy is far smaller than Japan, smaller than South Korea. They're really a third-world country. Their per capita uh, GDP is somewhere around $16,000. I mean, they're down there with... uh, you know, some African countries, uh, Eastern Europe. So economically, they are kind of a one-trick pony. They have natural resources, oil, gas, timber, um, and not a whole lot, and weapons. They do sell quite a bit of weapons. So that's really important, though, to understand them, because they want to be world players, and so they have to be very clever about what they do because they have about one dollar to spend on national security for every 13 we have so to quote winston churchill who said uh, gentlemen we're out of money now we have to think <laughs> the russians have no money so all they do is think and they're very clever as you know when, those, when you put those numbers into perspective uh, it's hard to understand how they can still have so much influence. I mean, I suppose when you have a major nuclear ars- arsenal, there's some, a certain amount of influence that comes with that to begin with. But beyond that, how are they giving us the proverbial run for our money? Well, if, it's very simple, really. They look at our weaknesses and develop their strengths to exactly line up against our weaknesses. So for a little bit of investment, they get a lot of return. And cyber is perhaps the number one area. If you look at their strategic thinking in their military journals and so forth, they've concluded that military force is almost outdated and not needed anymore. You can do what you need to, such as weaken NATO, with what they call active measures. There's some speculation, for example, that they played a role in Brexit and uh, causing that to happen because it weakened Europe. And in general, their approach is to weaken and divide their adversaries so they don't have to face them on the battlefield. A lot of people give Ronald Reagan credit for doing exactly that to actually break up the Soviet Union. Are you saying that the Russians have learned that lesson? Maybe they knew it beforehand and now are employing it against us? Well, if you go back to Lenin in the 20s, 1920s, he said, uh, we don't have the money of the capitalists, so we have to outthink them, and our strategy has to be to divide them against themselves. And uh, so this, what's been going on with the election meddling and so forth is nothing new. I mean, they were, during the civil rights movement in the 60s, taking out ads in newspapers, trying to inflame racial tensions for exactly that reason. But in general, the way the Russians are able to punch above their weight class is they're very smart about being very surgical in the way they approach things. Think of all the uh, press and uh, kind of prestige they got from turning America into solely being focused on one thing, them. Yeah. 
It's yeah. pretty damn effective. And, uh, of course, nuclear weapons uh, they've chosen. But, again, I, I would think of the Russians as having a few spikes in capability. Nuclear weapons are one. As I said before, cyber is another, and there are a few others. And they're very, very smart about aligning those to get the most effect. There seems to be an air of uh, Russian outreach to a lot of nations that may have a reason to have a gripe with the United States. Uh, mm-hmm. Is this a new... I mean, I know the Soviet Union did that. The world was very po- polarized at that point. Um, is this a new attempt to polarize the world? Well, uh, I don't know that... No, I wouldn't say so. I think that um, it's more prosaic than that, simpler. Uh, for example, if you look at what they're doing in Syria... They definitely are aiding Syria, who was a thorn in our side. And it's a benefit to them that it irritates us. But I'm not sure that that's the main reason they do it. Uh, You know, you you have to think in terms of their number one export, which is oil, and their interest in maintaining uh, certain things in that market for oil and gas, uh, the Middle East is a strategic reason for that reason, and also they want to maintain a presence in the Mediterranean. So um, I think that mostly if you want to look at uh, motivation for a country for doing anything, look at their own domestic politics. Uh, foreign policy is almost exclusively driven by internal goals. And what you have in Russia is a group of people in power who want to stay in power and grow their power. And I think you can look at a lot of their moves in that context. When we talk about spying uh, 40 years ago, which is, um, was it 40 years ago, 1978, if I do the math correctly? Yeah, Yeah, 41. 41 years ago. Um, The story that you tell in A Spy in Moscow Station. um, Was spying a cloak and dagger business, uh, not to to use it uh, in a a, uh, metaphorical sense, but in a serious sense, or... Was it more sophisticated back then than we give it credit for? Well, very sophisticated. Um, You know, the subject of the book is a technical penetration that the Russians achieved of our embassy, which was devastating to our national security. And the interesting thing about that penetration, uh, it was a kind of a bug, if, if without giving away the plot. It was an incredibly sophisticated bug, so sophisticated that our best bug-sweeping technology today would not find it 40 years wow. later. Wow. So, yeah, it was sophisticated. Wow. And in the book, uh, it does go into, a warn people that it's fairly technical. Um, but I did that because that was the lifeblood of Charles Gandhi, you know, a consummate engineer. And so I do go into the details, but I want people to uh, understand the breadth and depth and genius of the Russians. And you look at this stuff 40 years ago and you say, whoa, if they were that good 40 years ago with the march of technology for 40 years, where are they today? This story that um, you're telling in A Spy in Moscow Station, why does it, is it relevant today? Well, it's relevant today because this is a origin story for when we taught the Russians how to treat us. What happened in the story is that the Russians got incredibly aggressive to spy on us, took huge risks. We caught them at it. And for six years, what we did is pointed fingers at each other and went through this cycle of denial and blame. And ultimately, we did nothing to them because of what they did to us. 
And so they saw this and said, huh, we can get really aggressive, and the worst thing that happens if we're caught is that America is going to tear itself apart. And that's what happens in the story. You had CIA fighting, NSA fighting, the State Department. Um, it was a real food fight, if you will. And uh, I'm quite familiar with that, having been inside the intelligence community. It's, to me, pretty disappointing that after 9-11, where you would have hoped the intelligence agencies would cooperate with each other for the common good, um, I think it's pretty disappointing. There was some more cooperation than before 9-11, but nowhere near as much as there should be. There's a lot of turf wars and politics and uh, cover your ass and all that kind of stuff. And uh, uh, that goes on today. I think what you're seeing play out from 2016 till today is an echo of what happened all the way back 40 years ago. Well, I was going to ask about that. Um, We have several agencies that are fairly high profile and many that aren't as high profile. And we know there were communication failures and cooperation failures between those agencies that may or may not have been responsible for the terrorist attacks, at least the successful terrorist attacks of 9-11. We thought we were able to fix some of that, but we really haven't. Especially when we look at the way things are operating today, there seems to be a a political bent in these agencies with access to grind that's keeping them from actually working in our best interest. Is that uniquely American? Is that uniquely uh, something that is is a product of a democracy? Or do the Russians face those same types of hurdles? Well, first of all, I would say that when it comes to the intelligence agencies having a political axe to grind, limiting their effectiveness, I don't agree with that if what you mean is politics in the way normal people think of politics, like Republican-Democrat. I don't really think that's true. There's intergovernment politics, like who gets what budget, who gets what power, who has what turf. That kind of politics, you're absolutely right. But I really almost never saw in my years in the intelligence world uh, partisan politics play any kind of significant role at all. Um, I I didn't see that. And uh, I would say that most intelligence officers uh, are mission-oriented and put politics aside. I really believe that. That's that's refreshing to hear. But um, So am I misinterpreting some of the headlines as recently as today as to what's been going on in the FBI and in other parts of of uh, American intelligence and law enforcement? Yes. I think that the allegations that the intelligence community has been politicized and polarized is vastly overblown. I think that certain individuals like John Brennan, who took overtly political stands, didn't help. Right. But generally speaking, uh, you have to understand, the intelligence world is full of incredibly bright people. I've had my fights with CIA over the years, but I really respect them. They really hire incredible talent, and they really want to do what's best for the country. And for the most part, they put politics aside, tell truth to power, and call the shots as they see them. Uh, Because they could be making a whole lot more money doing other things, most of them. So uh, I think a lot that you've heard about the FBI pursuing a political agenda, CIA pursuing a political agenda. I just don't buy it at all. They do protect their turf, protect their reputations, and protect their budgets, but I don't see them uh, playing a strong political hand. 
That's so th- th- there, th- there are considerations that have limited their effectiveness, but I don't think partisanship is one of them. And Eric, I want to ask about networks and electronic spying, if you will. You know, mm-hmm. we're, f- we're familiar with the Internet now. It's part of our almost everyone's daily life and, and maybe even a, a necessary reliance on, the, on it. Um, but the Internet hasn't always been here. But even prior to the Internet, there were defense networks and there were other networks that just weren't publicly used. How long has uh, the electronic component of spying been important? Since the Civil War, when Confederate and Union troops would wiretap the telegraph, Oh, wow. And then in World War One, the British figured out how to actually stick electrodes in the ground and intercept German communication because they only used a single wire and uh, used the ground, literally the earth ground, as a return. So they were able to intercept German telegraphy by sticking electrodes in the ground. So it's actually fairly old tradecraft. It's been around a while. And I think that the Russians probably starting in the 1940s, got better than us at what we call surveillance or standoff attack. Uh, When you think of a standoff attack, it's like a laser microphone as opposed to a bug that's been put somewhere. Um, One of the things the Russians in the 40s got really good at is beaming radar beams at our embassies and secure facilities and extracting voice and data uh, using radar reflections. And uh, you might have heard, or some people might have heard, about the Great Seal of the United States in the U.S. Ambassador's Office in Russia. Mm -hmm. turned out it had an ingenious bug in it that had no power but responded to radar and basically turned uh, radar energy into voice that they could then listen to whatever was going on in the embassy. And uh, the Russians were so good at it that for years a lot of our people couldn't figure out how the thing worked even though they had it. How how much of um, espionage between nations, particularly Russia v- versus the United States, involves payoffs to what what would be, I guess, considered either uh, American intelligence officers that that sell information, or just other American citizens that uh, do the spying for the Russians or for any other nation, for that matter? Quite a bit. Um, I think that among the most devastating penetrations are what we call human penetrations. For example, the Walker family gave away our codes that we use to communicate the position of submarines and so forth. If there had been a nuclear war, it would have been really serious because they would have known where our nuclear subs were. Um, And then you had uh, FBI counterintelligence, uh, Hanson, and CIA counterintelligence, Alder James, and the list goes on and on. So it's been with us for a long, long time, and I'm certain it's with us right now. We um, have about a minute here before we have to go to break. Where can people get a hold of this book? It's on Amazon and in Barnes & Noble and in most bookstores. Just the Spy in Moscow Station. Just Google it, and it'll come right up. All right. So when we come back from break, I want to get into maybe what's been going on 
uh, in the last few years, we've heard a lot about Russia and we've heard a lot about meddling and spying and Facebook. And and uh, you know, there's fact, there's fiction, there's fake news. There's a whole bunch of stuff we need to weed through. And our guest, Dr. Eric Hazeltine, will be the perfect person to do that for us. Don't forget that coming up on the program next week, because tomorrow night is a best of show, we've got John Zeta joining us. Joining us. He's a journalist and he'll talk about his new book called In the Valley of the Noble Beyond. And then also next week, Rick Shapiro. He's a cancer consultant, a researcher, educator, and he's got a book out called Hope Never Dies, in which he relates stories of people who beat the odds and survived cancer. That'll be a very, very inspiring evening. And then also next week, Bernie Taylor. He's a naturalist and an author. He'll be answering the question, are we alone in the cosmos? Again, tonight we're talking with Dr. Eric Hazeltine about his book, The Spy in Moscow Station. Uh, Eric, how long has the book been out? came out uh, around the 1st of May. So a few months now. Um, mm-hmm. Any reaction from the intelligence community when something like this, uh, when, you, when someone publishes a book like this? Well, that's a good question. Um, NSA approved it because uh, I have to have everything I write approved. Sure. Uh, and they approved it very quickly. CIA took six months, and I had to hire a lawyer, and it was a real ugly struggle to get it out. Oh, geez. Because the book really paint CIA in a pretty damaging light. Um, one of the mysteries of the book is why CIA was fighting Gandhi, the protagonist, uh, in his uh, quest for the truth. Why, you know, what were they pushing back for? At one point, the director of CIA uh, called the director of NSA to shut Gandhi down. And uh, so his investigation went into the freezer for about two and a half years. Now, am I, if I'm understanding the plot correctly, um, his effort was to help save some CIA assets, right? Yeah, well, that was the baffling thing. That's exactly right. So then, that being the case, why did CIA shut him down? And what happens in the book is that a guy at NSA who was actually over Gandhi said, this is BS. He went to President Reagan, got a letter that says... You go to Moscow and find the truth, and don't tell anyone what you're doing, even CIA. So only George Shultz and the ambassador knew anything about what was happening. You were able to um, uncover this story, research the story, and tell the story in your book. How many such stories like this exist that we just don't know about? Oh, (laughs) (laughs) thousands. Really? Um, Yeah. I mean, this is one that I'm able to tell because it was declassified. Uh, I personally have been part of some fascinating stories that I can't talk about and know of others. Um, There are a few that I've been researching that I might uh, bring back uh, out into the public um, in the suitable time. But it's fascinating because really good stories are about good characters who are bent on overcoming obstacles at all costs, right. and find creative ways to do it. And that, that's really what happens in this story. Um, and uh, so it's kind of fun to see when faced with a seemingly insurmountable obstacle how an innovative, creative person can get around it. What was the most surprising thing that happened while you were writing and researching this book? Well, one of the characters in the book who shall remain nameless, because he doesn't want this talked about, uh, <laughs> Someone I interviewed during the course of the book, uh, at some point, was sent to Moscow. And in the winter, right before Christmas time, this individual 
basically stole a truck from the embassy, took it into Red Square, was doing donuts and, you know, spinning around and lost control of the truck, crashed on the Lennon's tomb, staggered uh, drunk out of the car and on a bet, uh, let's just say, um, relieved himself on Lennon before the KGB guards could grab him and arrest him. And he pulls out a black diplomatic passport and says, I've got immunity, you can't do anything to me. And uh, that kind of opened my eyes. I, uh, I heard some wild stories, but that was uh, the wildest. We've heard a lot about Russia over the last, what are we, in 2019? So three years or so, maybe a little longer than that. Um, you know, allegations of Russia meddling with elections. Let's back this clock up a little bit. What what was Russia up to leading up to the 2016 election? Well, it's always the same thing. It's to create advantage for themselves and their national interests. And they view uh, the U.S. as being an obstacle to a number of their national interests. Um, and so they view us more or less as an adversary. And uh, I think they realized long before we did that bits are the new bullets, that you can achieve a political, a geopolitical objective with cyber and with ideas without having to fire a shot. And you saw this in their war with Georgia and the conflict with Estonia, where they use cyber very effectively, but they also use information operations, which is to say propaganda to sow confusion and dissent amongst their adversaries. Um, and they're really good at it. And to them, it's all part of a unified warfare plan. But as I said before, uh, they really don't want to fight us on the battlefield. They prefer not to fight at all. If they can achieve their objective using information operations such as influencing elections um, or taking down power grids or banks or something like that, then they much prefer to do that. Is that a modern-day version of the pen is mightier than the sword? Yeah. No, that's right. Um, and, you know, in a way, it's very disturbing that they interfered in our election and attacked the very foundation of our democracy. Um, so in no way uh, am I happy about that, and I think that they should be held to account for it far more than they have been. That said, these measures, uh, there's a new term that you hear in Washington called gray war. And what it means is there is no such thing really as just peace or war. There's this thing in between where you don't have shooting and bombing and stuff like that, but you have cyber operations, uh, influence operations. You have things going on like uh, you might have heard recently about the diplomats in Cuba who had brain damage That's right, from yeah. some kind of remote weapon. M my take is it's almost certainly the Russians who did that, and it's part of a larger campaign of influence that says when you push us with sanctions and other things, there will be a cost that you have to pay. And uh, your elections are one, uh, your diplomats having brain damage is another. And it's not shooting, it's not kinetic, as we say, it's, it's a gray war. I have to better understand what the meddling part of the Russians meddling in our elections were. Outline for us what we know 
was uh, took place in the 2016 presidential election that would be considered meddling by the Russians? Well, I think I would divide it into two categories. The first one is a war of ideas. And a lot has been written about the Facebook posts, the uh, Internet Research Institute that uh, has trolls and bloggers and things like that to sway opinion and mostly to create dissension and conflict inside the U.S. as if there weren't already enough. Um, So I would call that the war of ideas. And clearly they did that. But then there was more direct meddling in the election system itself. As far as we know, they have penetrated or attempted to penetrate uh, a large number of states. And in some cases, uh, like in North Carolina, they were successful, or almost certainly them. I don't think you can say with 100% certainty, but very likely it was them, in preventing certain voters in blue districts from registering. Um, they got a lot of the vet voter registration rolls, um, and they clearly positioned themselves. Did they actually change votes? I think the jury's out on that. I haven't seen any compelling evidence that they did, but they could have. Uh, I wrote an article and then gave a number of speeches that the NSA approved, incidentally, in which I describe exactly how they could have done it. And uh, one of the things that disturbs me, every time I hear people say, oh, that's impossible, they couldn't influence an election with so many different election precincts, or they couldn't do X or they couldn't do Y. I have long experience with the Russians, and I don't ever say that's impossible. They do a lot of things that most people would think are impossible. What does that make you think of the rush, it seemed, at a time, uh, to the move to electronic balloting versus the old voting booth that had a little lever that used to go in and push down? Um, They seem to work just fine for me, and I always got nervous with this move to electronic ballots because it seems like they're easily manipulated, if not by the Russians, by anybody. Well, you have to be careful, though, that any system can be manipulated, even a paper ballot system. For example, someone has to count up the ballots, and then those counts have to be put somewhere. And whether or not the voting system is electronic, the place where that information is stored is electronic. And the the mechanism by which it gets transmitted from point A to point B, like from the local counties up to the state and up to the federal government, that also is electronic. And um, when you're in the business, as I was, in subverting systems and penetrating them, you look at it in a kind of a clinical, surgical way, and you say, well, let's assume it can be done, start there, and figure out what must be true. And most of the time, you can figure out a way to do it. So I don't take a lot of comfort in paper ballots. Let's jump to our phone lines. This is Sparky in Missouri. Hey, Sparky, welcome to the program. Hey, I was uh, wondering more about that Russian meddling stuff, and he seems to know a little bit about that uh, with the Facebook thing. Uh, You know, I have mostly just friends on Facebook, and I never saw anything from any kind of third parties about anything, and I'm always wondering what the heck are they talking about, you know, because I'm on Facebook quite a bit. Well, they, you know, masqueraded as U.S. citizens uh, making points, uh, and, you know, they were pretty surgical at how to get the word out, uh, but I think you're right in that 
did it really have a material effect on the election? Did it sway people? Did it change votes? I don't think we know that. I, yeah, I think I would like, not be prepared people, to say that. Did people, like, add these friends that they didn't even know, and then now they're just listening to them about who they should be voting for? Or, you know... Well, you know, a lot of it depends upon who you are and what demographic. The, the goal of these campaigns is actually not to change people's mind about who to vote for. It's what the politicians call to activate. In other words, to get you to go out and vote. Um, the feeling is that most people pretty much have their mind made up about who they like or don't like. What really matters is are they motivated enough to go to the and vote. And so the Russian campaign was largely aimed at activating a certain base, uh, not so much to sway. So they targeted people who, in a way, were already in one camp and just got them riled up enough to want to go and vote. All right, that theory makes more sense to me. All right. Um, Eric, somebody in our chat room asked about uh, the uh, disrespecting of American police officers. Was there a point where some of this Russian hacking uh, was trying to divide us uh, and maybe um, show some type of disrespect for police officers? Um, I don't know about that. Um, I don't know if they, the Russians are that concerned about police officers. Um, I do think that one of the baffling questions for those of us in the intelligence world is why it was so easy for us to attribute the attacks to them. Very good at hiding their tracks. And uh, to have familiarity with that, it was somewhat surprising. My conclusion is it's entirely possible that they wanted to get caught because it would produce exactly what's happened. You know, going back to the question about Facebook, I think it's very questionable whether there was any direct effect of the Facebook ads and so forth on the election. But the fact that they did it and there was an enormous debate about whether they did it uh, was far better for them because I don't think they care so much about who wins or loses an election. What they care is that they have an adversary that's divided unto itself and weakened. We have about a minute before we have to take our next break here. Um, the North Koreans were also up to some of this, too, and they're pretty good at it as well, aren't they? Yeah. Well, you know, one reason these uh, dictatorships are good at it is they have to be. Uh, when you don't have a democracy, your grip on power is not legitimate, and you've got to do whatever you can to uh, to hold on to it. And uh, so they get very inventive and aggressive because it's their survival at stake. Tonight, we're talking with Dr. Eric Hasseltine about his book, The Spy in Moscow Station. And Eric, the book has been described as a a toe-curling thriller. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's a true story. It's a true story, yeah. And uh, it's a thriller because there's a lot at stake. A lot of uh, lives are being lost over in Russia. We're losing our most precious national security secrets, and the clock is ticking. Because when President Reagan said, go to Moscow and get to the truth, he said, don't take forever doing it. So there was like a three-month deadline to either find it or settle the argument and move past it. So uh, in the book, you see that it's getting down close to the deadline, and they still haven't officially been able to find the problem. And, uh, of course, 
that's the whole climax of the book when they do. There are headlines actually coming up as we speak here. One of them is Russia targeted 2016 state elections with unprecedented Mm -hmm. level of activity, according to a Senate intelligence report. Um, They're also talking about Russia already meddling in the 2020 election. Uh, Mm -hmm. What can we start doing as a nation to maybe thwart some of that? The most important thing is to start with the assumption that if they want to do it, they can do it and put aside these claims that, oh, it's impossible, they can't do it, it's too complicated, and so forth. They can do it. And if they want to, they will do it. So that's the most important thing, is to believe it's possible. Um, The second thing is we have to look at the voting system like any high-security computer network and treat it accordingly. And there are rules that we developed at NSA for how you do that. And Without getting into any technical details, uh, I think we should bring NSA into the picture and have them use their best technology to design and develop a really secure election system. For example, where are the parts in the computers in the voting machines made? Where are they stored? How are they shipped? Who programs them? There are so many ways you can insert malware into a system that the only way to avoid that is to have positive control over everything from the foundry where the chips are made all the way through to where they're stored and operated. And that's the way we treat national security computer networks. And I believe that our election systems are vital to our national security and merit the same level of sophistication. Is part of the problem that we haven't taken this threat seriously enough? Maybe we haven't allocated enough resources to uh, combating it, solving it, uh, protecting ourselves from it? That's right. That's exactly it. And the fact is, what I'm talking about will cost money. And a lot of uh, counties don't have a lot of money. And the election systems that they used are based on very old, antiquated, you know, like Windows XP or NT technology, literally. Um, There was a hackathon at the latest uh, DEF CON, you know, the hacking conference, in which they had all the different election systems, and every single one of them was hacked quite easily. Really? Yeah. And, and you know, it's it's not acceptable. I mean, it's the very foundation of our country, our democracy, and I think we need to take it seriously. What are you doing? Uh, Obviously, you have been involved in government. Uh, You have connections in government. Are you lobbying for an effort to start taking this more seriously? Um, I'm writing articles about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I do as a former senior intelligence officer is I try very hard to avoid politics. Because as I said, it's really important that the public have confidence in their intelligence agencies and the people who run them. And if people like me start taking political positions, uh, it erodes that. Right. And so I don't get into politics that way, but what I do is I write articles and I educate If I hear what you're saying correctly, when we roll back to this 2016 election meddling by Russia, um, and you broke it down into two components, one component was this social media ads and influencing, and the other is a direct um, intervention into some election systems at the state level. Um, Am I hearing you say that you're not as concerned about the social media stuff? No. 
I'm only concerned about it to the degree that it causes us to fight each other when we argue over whether they did it and whether it had an influence. And that's their main goal. Um, you know, it's kind of like a bee sting and being allergic to bee sting. It's not the bee that kills you. It's your reaction to the bee that kills you. And that's kind of what we're doing with the Russians. You know, we are creating all the damage ourselves. Is there a way to identify as a casual Facebook user when you might be subject to some type of um, foreign influence like that? No. Can't tell. No, I don't think so. I mean, the only uh, defense against that is just good judgment. Right. Um, and look, you know, our great strength, we can view our open society as a weakness, but it's also a great strength, the sure. fact that we have dissent and discussion and, you know, conflict of ideas. That's all very healthy. And uh, so there is no way we can retain our democracy without allowing a lot of opinions out there, some of which are quite... Uh, reprehensible. But at the same time, that's a democracy. And we have to be open to a diversity of all ideas. So I don't think we can maintain America as it is today and have any meaningful control over what people say on social media. If we extend this a little further, we have seen basically a collapse of the newspaper system in the country. We don't, uh, very few communities actually have newspapers anymore. Uh, mm -hmm. And they were considered the source for the official record for most uh, local governments. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you know, cable channel news has become basically a very partisan business. Mm -hmm. And so many people have turned their attention to social media as their source of news. Is that, as that continues to become more of, the, more of the case, is that going to make us more vulnerable to this stuff? Yeah. Yeah, I think we're going to be vulnerable. Any open society is going to be vulnerable to these kind of attacks. One of the really important things is to watch what Russia does. I had a mentor at NSA who said, if you want to understand someone's offense, carefully study their defense. And Russia has an initiative to isolate their Internet from the rest of the world. And that tells you they take this stuff incredibly serious because that's a big effort to do that. But what it tells you is they understand the power of exploiting the Internet, and they don't want it to be used against them. So they're going to try to uh, carve out an Internet that is basically air-gapped from the rest of the world to prevent people doing to them what they're doing to the rest of the world. When you wrote the book and you were investigating this and you were starting to – were you able to get the actual names? I mean, I know you have some of them, but were, is this all this information declassified? Yep. It was uh, – CIA went over it with a fine-tooth comb, as did NSA, and I was very scrupulous. I, I don't want to reveal any national security information. I care a lot about protecting this, and that's the whole point of my book is what we need to do to protect this kind of stuff. So um, I got everything that I got was declassified. I will say that because I speak Russian and I spend a lot of time in Russian cyberspace, <clears throat> a lot of the material I got and translated from Russia. And there were techniques in there that might well be classified here, but that are taught in freshman information security college courses over there, which really is an eye-opener and sobering. A book like this, especially one that's called a toe-curling thriller, um, certainly has the potential to move to a screen of some sort. Any talk of that? Yeah. 
I'm uh, got a sh- what we call in Hollywood. You know, I worked at Disney for many years, That's so right. I'm kind of familiar with this process. And I have a shopping agreement with a producer and a screenwriter, and we're getting ready to pitch the studios probably next month. Nice. Um, is this a uh, one in a series? Do you look? Are you going to look for more stories like this that you're going to be able to tell? Um, I don't think so. Not not right away. Um, it was a lot of work, and it was especially painful uh, getting it approved by CIA, which I'm right. going to have to do with each and every book. Uh, I'm focusing my next effort on a uh, book with my wife, uh, Dr. Chris Gilbert, who's my frequent co-author. Um, we wrote The Listening Cure together. She's a physician. We talk about mind-body medicine. Uh, but our next book is going to be on innovation and very counterintuitive ideas about how to kind of break the mold and create game changers. As, as a futurist, and I know you advise uh, many companies, you speak frequently on all of these topics, but as a futurist, um, what's your opinion on the what seems to be a snowballing um, uh, approach to um, automation in our economy and also this integration between mind and computer? Yeah. Well, um, let me take your points separately. Um, I think that automation and AI are snowballing. That's, it's an exponential. You know, when you look yeah. at what happened with microelectronics starting in 1965 and so-called Moore's Law, you had a veritable explosion, which has driven most of modern life. And that was the integrated circuit and CMOS and so forth. Artificial intelligence is probably going to be even more impactful. And I don't even think you're going to recognize our society in 25 to 30 years. Uh, we can't imagine all the things that are going to happen. But uh, I think it's safe to say that a lot of jobs that are out there today are going to be replaced. Even white-collar jobs like accounting, financial analysis, and so forth. And uh, it's going to raise some really tough questions. Yeah. What do we do with the people who are put out of work? And uh, if the whole point of technology is to improve the human condition, how are we improving the human condition by putting people out of work? These are going to be some really gut-wrenching questions that we're going to confront in the next probably even 10 years. Yeah, yeah, it seems to be happening rapidly. Um, You know, it's kind of creeping in now. We're seeing it in places like going to order fast food, if you will. Um, yeah. But it's going to it's going to um, increase rapidly from there. Um, it, and it, and, but on your question about yeah, mind, right. uh, brain, you know, brain computer interfaces, I'm very interested in that. I've done some work in that area. And um, I think what you're going to see is it's going to start with prosthetics. You already have brain stimulators, for example, with people with Parkinson's disease and brain pacemakers for people with convulsive disorders. You're starting to see cochlear implants and things of that nature. And so people are starting to figure out. There's a guy named Miguel Nicolelis who has uh, helped paraplegics walk again with robotic legs by interfacing directly to their brain to control robotic legs. And uh, this isn't science fiction. This is happening. You're also seeing some experiments in telepathy where a group in India communicated thoughts uh, two directions to a group in France by placing devices on the scalp and having subjects think certain things and then transmit them um, across the globe. And that experiment has been done. 
So I think that it's going to start with medicine and prosthetics, and as the technology matures, we're going to start seeing it used for healthy people. Eric, it's been a great conversation. Once again, where can people find your book, The Spy in Moscow Station? Well, the best place is Amazon. Um, You can also get it at Barnes & Noble and pretty much uh, any uh, online book outlet. We appreciate your time. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. You know, it's uh, it doesn't try to make light of the of a very serious topic that we were discussing tonight with Dr. Hasseltine. Um, what do you think about this Facebook stuff? I, you know, I, I think people forget that Facebook is a it's not a news source. It's not a you know an official vetted reporter driven source of news. They you know when people see something posted there, they automatically assume it's legitimate in most cases. You know, I I, I don't know. I think it's I think. It's a social network. Right. It's a social network. Well, you made the point that um, our news outlets have gotten so politicized and so um, partisan that I think for some people it, it feels like the real deal, the real story. They're getting the truth. They're getting you know some unfiltered thing. I don't know if I now all of a sudden prefer all the cat pictures <laughs> that I used to hate. Maybe they're better on Facebook. I don't know. Sure. Um I don't. I don't use many of the other social media platforms. In fact, I real. I don't really use any of them. You know, there's Instagram's very popular. Yeah. There's Snapchat. There's Twitter. I don't use any of them. Are they the, have the same vulnerability? I mean, do you use any of those? Oh, um, well, I don't know if they have a vulnerability, but yeah, right. They have. They each have their own kind of clicks or their own scenes. Um, you know, uh, sure, but yeah, Twitter for sure. Um, you know, a lot of academics and scholars and whatnot are on Twitter having these. Um, Debates and it's very easy for somebody to to kind of infiltrate those conversations for sure. Hmm, interesting. Well, I think the the best advice that anybody can give anyone else when it comes to the stuff is just be skeptical when you read any of this stuff. You know, do a little research. Um, you know, one of the things that we have almost fallen victim to on this program is the announcement of somebody passing away or or um, you know some other news announcement in our industry that's of interest to us and we. You know, we have to hesitate before we just run with it because you need to check the sources and verify that it's accurate. And we found on several occasions that the stuff that we were about to announce isn't true. Hmm. So. Yeah, I mean, you owe it to yourself and, and uh, all the people in your social network to just uh, take a breath and uh, do a little homework first. If it sounds too good to be true, if it sounds sensationalistic, it probably is. Yeah, it probably is. All right. Tomorrow night is a best of program here on Beyond Reality Radio. Thanks for a great week, folks. We'll catch you next week. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Intercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at JVJParanormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.